Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 29 of Prognudes. My name is Destin. And I'm Drew. And today we are listening to Moon Madness by Camel. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the show. We hope to educate and inspire you to uncover and learn about progressive rock music that you uh, may have never heard of or want to learn more about. There are a lot of great podcasts out there, so we're very honored that you're with us, and we would love to connect with you. So please give us a follow on Instagram at prog underscore notes or Facebook at prog notes podcast. If you're a part of our community, welcome back. And if you enjoy what you hear today, we would be very grateful if you shared the episode with a friend and subscribe so you will be notified when we launch a new episode. Now, probably some of the people that are seeing this, Drew, are, are thinking, oh my gosh, wait a minute, they're doing mood madness on this episode because we had a poll in our Discord community about uh, a couple of weeks back asking people, hey, you know, you're going to vote on this episode. What is this? You know, what episodes do you want to vote on? And it came down to two records that people were going to vote on for episode 30. And so it came down to two records being Mood Madness by Camel and Caress of Steel by Rush, right? Yes. And and it's so it's it's hilarious because we already had episode 29 planned out to do Mirage. We already had yeah. that plan. So we, so it we was had, already a Camel record. It, it was, was already, already a Camel, camel record. record. Out of but all the records that they could have picked from, they chose a Camel record. Yeah, it was really the, bizarre that it was it was Camel that came so close, neck and neck. And I don't know who orchestrated like the actual poll. Uh, well, everybody just voted on it in our Discord channel. Everybody just yeah, voted. But like, people like, were throwing out albums, they and were then everybody out started different voting ideas. On yeah. yeah, and then so, I don't know how like some of these caught fires as opposed to others, but then it came down to like, oh yeah, Moon Madness versus Caress of Steel. Let's and. Well, we were going to do Mirage, and I told Destin, I said, okay, it'd be kind of cool to do the runner-up first off. Second, I had briefly listened to Mirage, and it didn't grab me nearly as much as Moon Madness did. Yeah. Um, just from a very, very brief cursory listen to both of those. And I thought, you know what, let's do Moon Madness anyways. So Let's just do it, yeah. So it's, uh, I guess the good thing here is that we're doing both records <laughs> that that were voted on in the in the poll. Yes is that we're now doing Moon Madness. And then, of course, we just gave it away because episode 30 will be on Caress of Steel by Rush, which was voted on by you. So we are I'm, I'm super excited to do both of these records. Um, but let's talk about Moon Madness first, shall we? Uh, Moon Madness is the fourth studio album released March 26th, 1976 by the English progressive rock band Camel. Uh, this is the last record recorded by the original lineup, which is Andrew Latimer on guitars, vocals, and flute. Uh, which, by the way, he's the founding and the only member who has been with the band since their formation in 71. Uh, also in the band is Peter Bardens on keyboards and vocals. Uh, and I found this out about him you know, because he's the, you know, Latimer is the only person who has been who stayed with the band. So the rest of the members went off and did other projects. Uh, well, Bardens played with Van Morrison. He did stuff with Rod Stewart and toured with the Alan Parsons Project and also released 11 solo albums, which I find to be bizarre. Uh, that's a lot of music. Uh, Doug Ferguson is on bass and vocals and Andy Ward is on drums and percussion, uh, who was also a founding member and was forced to retire from the band in 1981. And two years later, he briefly replaced Mick Pointer as he was fired from Merlion, which I find to be a little fun fact. All of these just intertwine, you know, sometimes like, Oh, they play with that. They played with them. That's cool. Yeah. Following the success of their previous album, which was The Snow Goose, which uh, which was also an instrumental narrative concept album based on the book The Snow Goose, uh, the band decided to write an album of songs 
uh, that reflected the personalities of the individual members, uh, which is similar to Fragile by Yes. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. And this album also brings back singing into the music. So how was all of that taken, Drew? What were some of the reviews like for this uh, for this new approach from their previous record? Sure. I'll start out with the numbers like I usually do. Um, yeah. This was their highest charting album, which is interesting, especially oh, I didn't know that. what I'm going to say with the actual written reviews. A lot of people really enjoyed Snow Goose beforehand. So uh, anyways, but this was their highest charting album with uh, uh, number 118 in the U.S. charts. So not incredibly high, uh, but it still got it was still charting. Um, still charted. Yeah. Number 16 in the Dutch charts, 48 in Swedish charts, number 15 in the U.K. charts and number 21 in Spanish charts. It sold over 60,000 copies in the UK. Um, this is not like other uh, prog albums that we've reviewed on the show where it was incredibly well-known or the band is incredibly well-known. I think yeah. a lot of people who enjoy prog rock will recognize the name Camel. Um, but also, I don't think it's one that people instantly think of when they think of progressive rock or the pioneers. Um, I would agree. So they're a little less known. But definitely, if you enjoy the genre, you've probably heard of them. And if you're a big fan of the genre, you might know their entire discography. Who knows? This, yeah. I, I don't know if you already said it or not, Dustin, but this is your first and I, you and I, this is the first time we've heard a Camel record all the way through. Um, so this was this was interesting for me. It was cool to know a little bit more about them. Um, yeah. But uh, yes, this, this was their highest charting one. It was voted number 58 in the top 100 prog albums of all time by the readers of Prague Magazine. Um, back in 2014, I don't know how that's been updated since, or if it's wow. been updated. Sometimes these, these, like these magazines, I feel like we'll, we'll only do this once every several years. So, and right. I guess, it, I guess it depends on the magazine, maybe on a yearly some, up, or annually updated. Yeah. I, it's maybe some of them do. Uh, but for this particular one, Prague magazine, it was number four, uh, sorry, in 2014, it was number 58 out of 100. Um, wow. in the Q and Mojo classic special edition, Pink Floyd and the story of Prague rock, the album came number 23 and a list of 40 cosmic rock albums. Cosmic um, rock. I like that. I know. I think that's an interesting term and pretty, pretty appropriate for this record. Yeah. Um, all music gave it a, the, the official review. Uh, they they kind of have like an overall official reviewer. And then they also have user reviewers and scores. So the official one was uh, three out of five. Okay. So three out of five stars. Um, however, the aggregate score, the user score, is much higher. It's around 4.5 out of five. Um, so the main review, the official review, quote unquote, was written by uh, David Jensen. He had this to say. Um, Moon Madness is more akin to traditional English progressive rock, even though it does occasionally dip into jazz fusion territory with syncopated rhythms and shimmering keyboards. Furthermore, the songs are a little more concise and accessible than those of its predecessor. That doesn't mean Camel has abandoned art, though. Moon Madness is indeed a concept album, based loosely on the personalities of each member. Um, and we'll go into that a little bit more later, but uh, yeah. chord change is Peter Bardens, who's the keyboardist Airborne, is Andy Latimer, the... I guess you could say front man. He's a guitarist and flautist. Yeah. Um, and like you said, the guy who maintained through uh, the entire um, the entire history of the band. Like he's, he's the one who's yep. already been yeah, he's, the yeah. whole time. Uh, Lunar C is Andy Ward, who's the drummer. And Another Night is Doug Ferguson, the bassist. Yeah. So um, I, I thought that was a good uh, little excerpt from his review. Um, the... 
there's another person on that website. It was a user instead. Uh, <laughs> user's name was Stanley Sergeant Pepper. Um, nice. He had this to say. Uh, just very short snippets, but very interesting. The last progressive rock masterpiece by Camel. Um, although they would resurface every now and then with uh, uh, now and then with albums back in a good shape. Um, the album features the track Lunacy, which I consider the peak of Camel's compositional and playing skills. It is this album where the band showed their best virtuoso playing skills. Hmm. That's what this user had to say, which I thought was interesting. Um, Prague Archives uh, gave it a 4.39 out of 5, with 56% giving it a perfect score of 5 out of 5, and 34% giving it a 4 out of 5. So that's 90% of the people who voted on this and gave it a rating thought that this album's pretty great. It's at it's four and above, which yeah. I think if you give something a four, it's pretty solid. Yeah, yeah really solid. solid. You've enjoyed it, and you're wanting to listen to it more than once. Yeah. I feel like five-star reviews get thrown out a little too uh, loosely, mm-hmm. possibly. I don't know. Like, I would give something a four if I'm like, I like it. I'd listen to this again. It's a solid record. But, like, to give something a five out of five, that to I, me is, like, flawless. What you just described is more of a three out of five to me. I like yeah, it. Oh, really? Do it again. You know, four out of five is, like, this is really, really good, but it's not perfect. But yeah. it's not a four out. It's not a five out of five. You know what yeah. I mean? I guess, I guess like, my, I guess, scale, if I was going to rate something three out of five, was, like, I didn't dislike it. But it was one of those things where, like, I listened to it, and I wouldn't return back to it. It was, like, it was okay. It didn't make me, like, despise it. But it's like, eh, it was it was okay, and I'll just and I'll give it away. Like when I, 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 I when I actually like, dislike it, 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 that's when it goes like two and one. I think I, I'd rather do like a ten point scale. I feel like that gives it a little bit more of a granular feel to it. I don't know. That's yeah. me. That's Anyways, probably, probably right. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, side rant. Exactly. Um, someone on Prague Archives. It's a reviewer. His name is Gato. Um, he he gave it a five out of five. And I thought he had an interesting... He, he gives a little comparison to King Crimson. So I'll, I'll read this here. Interesting. When looking back at the highly innovative music produced by British bands who emerged in the, in the, in the 1970s, the name Camel is always prominent. Their legacy includes albums such as Mirage, Snow Goose, and Moon Madness, all of which do much to enhance the reputation of a band who, unlike many of, uh, many of other contemporaries, have survived nearly 30 years in the music business and still demand a loyal and a vo- sorry, loyal and devoted following throughout the world, both in concert and on record. The consistent factor through various lineup changes has been and continues to be guitarist and flautist Andrew Latimer. Yes, mm-hmm. I think Cam- Camel is similar to King Crimson in terms of evolution of their lineup. Whatever changes in, in lineup, the guitarist remains the same and it's the only member that all, uh, sorry, that will always be there in any album the bands may have. The only difference between these two bands is that in terms of musical style, uh, consistency. King Crimson underwent fundamental change in their musical direction when they reformed and released Discipline Discipline album, while the music style of Camel remains intact since its inception until now. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I agree with it entirely, but it does. I was about to say, I don't know. Because, I mean, you know, you look at Yes, like, the guitarist wasn't the guy who stayed the entire time. They replaced right. Steve Howe with Trevor Rabin. Yeah. Um, and they did, yeah, they, they went through a lot of different guitarists. And so, um, or maybe it was really, it was mainly Trevor Rabin. 
feel like right. they had I think some so. guest positions as well, though, probably throughout the career. They probably did. I don't know. I think that's um, the law of yes. Like, we mm-hmm. have to have revolving door musicians. That was just, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> but uh, I I do tend to agree. I, um, It does seem a lot of the times like the guitarist is the one that is kind of the head of the group. I mean, I feel like that's just been kind of rock in general. When you think of rock... In general, not just prog rock, a lot of people are like, oh, I like sick guitar solos, right? Lots of notes, lots of distortion. And like, yeah, the one that really kind of shines a lot in a lot of rock, in the realm of rock, is the lead guitarist or something. Yep. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I feel like by and large, that's kind of true. That's the person who usually stays with the group. Um, but obviously not always. But anyways, uh, yeah, I thought that was kind of an interesting... Kind of the guitarist and drums. You know, I feel like bass sometimes gets uh, overshadowed or not highlighted enough. Well, if we're just, ta- if we're just talking the generic rock realm, right? Right. Um, yeah, they kind of they kind of have that hat. But I agree with you. It's kind of like the guitars. It's it's the it's the lead guitars. The lead guitars. Yeah. It's kind of. Um, yeah. I'll I'll give one last little excerpt here, but before that, okay. I'll just say that in general, this seems like it was this record was received very well. I don't think it's one of those that you're going to look at and be like, this is a progressive rock masterpiece piece that everyone looks towards, that everyone looks to, and it's like, this yeah. is a prog rock icon. It's yeah. not. Um, and I, you know, I agree with that. Um, there's a reason no one really looks at it like that um, or instantaneously look, looks to it. Um, but it is very solid, and we'll give our opinions on it later. Um, but it was received very well, I think, especially in comparison to its last record. I think a lot of people... Uh, from what I had heard, a lot of people really enjoyed Snow Goose and they thought it was ambitious. And I think it was actually a fairly good commercial su- success too, which was really weird because it didn't have any lyrics in it at all. And so yeah, that is weird. I think the record company and what I, I researched, and again, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I think the record company was like, okay, you can't really do that again. Like that was seriously like a miracle. That's not going to happen again. So if you just do a completely lyricless album again, it's not going to work commercially for us. And their record company at the time was Decca. Um, uh, Decca. And, uh, yeah. Um, and I, I think that they thought they could go in and try to do, I think most any artist feels that way um, when they have a really big hit and they think we can just do that again mm. and get, yep. you know, have the same kind of success. Um, crud, I've heard that with Rush and Moving Pictures. That was, I mean, they had a lot of successful albums before, but Moving Pictures just launched them into somewhere else. And we covered that on our, what was it, episode? Episode 15. 15, yep. yeah. Yep. Um, but, uh, you know, and they say, oh, we could have done the same thing. I think that brings in an interesting discussion, actually. And maybe we should save it for another episode or something well, what, like that. What, 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 what was it right now? The, what is it? What's the truth to that? Oh, we could have easily made that again. No, you couldn't have. You could not have made moving pictures again. You couldn't have made Dark Side again. You know, mm. could you have actually done that? First off, that's an interesting question in and of itself. Second, if we could catch even if lightning you... in a bottle. <laughs> it's... Shoot, shoot. If there's one bad bunch of oh shoot, I, I thought... <laughs> it's make unreal. lightning there. <laughs> oh gosh, I'm. So... We probably just went on the most random. Okay, that was a Kroll Show reference. Yeah, for anyone who cares. Whatever. Anyone Stupid who cares. Show. Anyways. Dumb sketch. Uh, Nash <laughs> Ruggie's totally Reunion. <laughs> Sponsored by totally Stamps. Sorry. All right, I'm totally sorry for like, like no, it's hijacking, good. but I, I heard it and it came out. So anyway, continue. 
first, could could you could you do that? Could you could you do moving pictures that? twice? That's an interesting question in and of itself. So, or, or any, I mean, take pick your favorite, right? I feel like I hear that a lot, where they're like, you know, we easily could have come in and made the same record again, but we decided to do something different. Okay, they, they think that they think right. That. Right. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? It's like it's always the band who thinks they could do and the same thing. And that's not to disparage thing. like, you know, the the bands who say that because most of the bands that I hear say this, I'm in love with the records they're they're talking about and I'm in love with the bands. Like I I love Rush and I love Steely Dan. Like, yeah, we could have made Asia again. No, no. But like I'm thinking, could you? First off, second, even if you could, it, it's a good thing that you didn't. It's a good thing that you didn't because you shouldn't try to make the same record twice. Exactly. I don't think, um, I think it's, I do think it's a, it's a fine line to walk because you want to make something new and different, but you also want to retain that same kind of feel to your group. See, that's what, this is why I like rush so much is, is because it's like, even though they went through four different decades, you could still tell it's them. You could still tell their personalities. They just, it was just almost like the equipment that they used was right. was towards the times you know what i mean and right. uh like the people who who do that really really well have have made it successful and they've gone right. you know they've be able to cover a large spectrum of textural experiences throughout all of their music with different yeah. drum sounds different guitar sounds different synths and use incorporating new instruments and stuff like that and uh, i mean that's kind of I don't, I don't know i mean pretty progressive in its sense it's just kind of branching out right you know what i mean well, and it's, uh, uh yeah. Interesting because then you have other bands that kind of go a completely different direction for whatever reason. It might be because they have a completely different lineup or because they feel they have to really change. Usually it's a different lineup. I feel like usually when you bring yeah. in different influences, that's going yeah. to affect it. And that's okay. But like, look at, I mean, look at what the guy said with King Crimson. He's totally right. You look at oh, yeah. stuff like Red and Islands and Lizard. Stuff, yeah. This kind of stuff that has more of a jazzy feel to it than anything else. And then you throw yeah. in discipline. Sorry, excuse me. Discipline. Yeah, That's Baloo a comes in. Sound. Well, Adrian Baloo comes in. Tony Levin comes in, and the the sound of the drums is very different from Bruford's perspective too. His kit changed too, and you know yep. those musical sounds, those instruments that you're playing has an effect. One and two, the composition was very different. I mean, they they were very different. They were still progressive rock, absolutely, but it's a very different flavor to what they were. You know, in what seventy four, seventy three. Yeah, you know, yeah, early, so, yeah, early seventies. Yeah. So, anyways, um, that's just some interesting topics. Maybe, yeah, you can we we can re, you rehash know, that out. Some rehash that out in the Discord or something. Uh, yeah. Revisit that in the Discord. I don't know if people. I I think that's an interesting conversation at least. But anyways, yeah. anyway, all, reeling, all it, that reeling say, it back in. All that to say, there was a, a blog. Just, it's just called The Music Aficionado, and they wrote about Moon Madness. And I won't read the whole thing, though I will say, if anyone has the time, if you're interested in Camel or you like this record at all, you should absolutely check out this blog. He gives... A, say a it again, what it is. It's, it's just called The Music Aficionado. Okay. And the I think the title of this particular blog entry is just Moon Madness by Camel. Um, so I think maybe if you Google it, it's like the story behind Moon Madness or something like that. Um, but I would encourage anyone to, to check this out because he gives he or she, I actually don't know who wrote it. I don't think I see a name for an author, but the author gives a little bit of their opinion <coughs> while also adding a, a fair amount of context and history to this record and how it was recorded and some 
you know, quotes that they have from the members on this group. So it was a really oh, interesting cool. read. And it's not too long either. Um, but really enjoyed reading this. Um, and I'll just read kind of one of the beginning paragraphs. I think it's the second or third. He or she, uh, the author says, Camel is one of my favorite bands in that magical era of progressive rock in the early 1970s. They purely focused on the music and had none of the drama's peculiar peculiar personalities and over-the-top stage shows that defined some of their peers. Hmm. They were certainly one of the most melodic bands. Their lengthy musical compositions and passages never boring and connecting to each other very tastefully. Many of their solos were memorable and you could hum them to yourself, something you could rarely do with most of the great instrumentalists of the time. But Camel had one weak point, and maybe that was the reason they were less successful than some of their other peers. There was no natural-born singer and performer on that Yep. Band. Yeah. More than one of them could sing, but none had a great voice or stage presence, the like of Peter Gabriel, Ian Anderson, or Greg Lake. Writing lyrics was also not their best skill, and it is no wonder that their best-known concept album of that period is one without any lyrics. Yeah. Drummer Andy Ward said of the late of Lady Fantasy, one of their all-time best songs from the Mirage yep. album. Yep. Exactly. I think the lyrics to that are absolutely dreadful, and I wrote some of them. When you compare them to a songwriter who's really got something, uh, got something to say, and vocally, um, the band were, were weak compared to. Sorry, sorry. Let me reread that. To a songwriter who's really got something to say, and vocally, the band were weak compared, say, to Caravan, who had two great singers, Pie Hastings and Richard yep. Sinclair, yep. two terrific singers. Pete Bardens and Andy Latimer didn't have that, and they knew this to be true. It was hard for them, but at least they gave it a go. So that was what the drummer said uh, hmm. of it. So um, that's some of the reviews. I have a lot to say about this. We'll wait till we get to the end where we kind of talk about our opinions on it and everything. Yeah. Um, but uh, by and large, um, you know, there are definitely pros and cons to this record, like most music in general. Um, right. Uh, yeah. But on the whole, I think um, the band and the fans were pretty satisfied with this record i mean you know i've read some on prog archives and you're always going to find the naysayers out there who said yeah it just didn't match up to snow goose um which was you know the record right before this um but by and large i think lots of people thought this was still really strong and it wasn't a repeat and we really appreciated that so yeah that's kind of in a nutshell what i found out yeah no, that's good i like that i'll have to go and read that music aficionado thing I just, oh, like, I'll I reference like, it a, a, a little bit later. A little bit well, later? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Because the, the, the context of it is really great as well. Because not only that, I think the uh, the music finds its place in in the times. Like, I mean, we're in 76, right, in this record. And I think this album finds its place in in the world of progressive rock that was happening in the mid-70s. You know, well, because a lot of the times you hear the things, you know, you hear a lot of repeats. Right. Um, and stuff where it's kind of like, yeah, it kind of sounds like this, kind of sounds like this. I think this is fairly unique in its regard for, uh, um, you know, having its place in the in the prog right. rock world uh, for a band who didn't have a whole lot of, you know, big success, which I would right. probably agree that it'd be the vocals that, that caused that. Right. Well, you were, you were talking about where we're at in the history of progressive rock. I'll mm -hmm. read again, sorry, the same, the same thing, the very introductory paragraph, because it when you're talking about context, he kind of gives, or he or she gives some here. 1976 was not the top year in the classic period of progressive rock, and arguably just outside of that golden era altogether. 
Many of the bands at the genre's top echelon were still touring, recording, and releasing albums, but for most, these albums didn't really rank among their best. Yeah. Genesis, Yes, and the ELP already released their best albums. King Crimson was no more, at least for that decade. Punk was knocking at the door, and as any rock or pop sub, uh, subgenre, the classic period of progressive rock seemed to run out of steam after five years. One band was an exception, still on their way up artistically and commercially in 1976. With a couple of excellent records released in the previous two years, you could have expected them to peter out like many of their contemporaries, but they had one more masterpiece coming. This Rush. is the story of Camel's Moon Madness. So ah. this, yeah, this was the introduction to this whole Moon Madness thing. And I think that's right. Um, and to, to kind of echo what you said, Dustin, yeah, I think really the other band that really strikes that was kind of after a mm-hmm. lot of the the big flashpoint that was um, 69 to 74-ish. Right. That was 69 to 73, 74. Um, the big exception, I think, uh, I, I think this record actually, I agree with the writer, is is an exception. This really continued on the legacy of progressive rock in a pretty unique albeit understated way understated yeah but with rush i agree that that's kind of the exception and of course i mean we're rush fans that's not a secret we reference them all the time on the show we're big fans um but i do think that they uh really continued they they carried the torch let's let's put it that way i would yeah um yeah in a sense uh in in the you know mid to late 70s and then of course you know they continued it all throughout um then we could go into a whole history of rush, but they were, um, they were one of the ones to continue this on because I agree with this writer. It's like, you know, by 74. Okay. A lot of these prog rock bands were kind of petering out. Yeah. In, in a sense, I mean, you or still, at least you still changing have... direction pretty significantly. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, the year before this, I mean, animals hadn't come out yet. You know, you had Rishi were here, which was in 75. You know, Pink Floyd which is also they, kind they of the were, exception because they yeah, lasted they were, like the whole seventies. Ex- exactly, they were kind of the exception there. But I mean, through yes, um, I mean, goodness, let's see here. Uh, after Close to the Edge, you've got Tales from Top of Ground. Oceans. Tales, but the tour, the tour of Tales was was a flop. Uh, right. Even even though they had pretty good success with it, the tour of it was horrible. Right. Uh, I'm trying to think of any other exceptions that were at the time. It was mainly the stuff that was going on before. Of course, I'm I'm probably missing stuff because I can't think of every album that came out uh, before '76. Right. But I think at the very least, most people would agree, though, that kind of the golden era of of this was yeah, like '69 to probably '74. I think that's that's probably appropriate to say. Yeah, a lot of amazing records came out during that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and again, that's not to say that after that all prog rock was trash or that it wasn't no, good or no, 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 that's not all. what we're saying. But, but this was, this was a time where it was really burgeoning. I, mm-hmm. I think that's probably the best way to say it. Yeah, that's good. Um, that's good. So anyways, anyway. all right, well, let's go into, uh, 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 kind of a, I guess you could say, what would, what would you call this? Just some leanings into something that pops up every now and then when it comes to this, uh, th- this music, at least, mm-hmm. and I found this. We talked about this a little bit. Was the Canterbury scene, mm-hmm. um, and you know we've we've kind of talked about that a little bit. The Canterbury scene. What is the Canterbury scene? Uh, and I wouldn't say this. This uh, camel is not completely one hundred percent associated with the Canterbury scene. Uh, and and it's all it's you know when you look into like Prague Archives has a a great little sub thread 
or sub article or whatever you want to call it page on the Canterbury scene. And I've never really thought of the Canterbury scene being a progressive rock thing. Like that was just like, oh, it's like a subgenre, like neo prog, symphonic prog, Zool, right. all that crap, and everything under below. Um, Canterbury hasn't been one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, I haven't really looked at it. So this is kind of the first time of actually me really uh, looking at it a little bit. And so I think it, from everything that we've listened to on the show, the topic of the Canterbury scene could definitely be applied most to this album out of all the records that we've done. And so I think uh, we can talk about it more when we get into, you know, maybe we'll do some soft machine or caravan in the future would love to, which is like, you know, known or maybe gong or egg or something like that. People who are Canterbury scene fans know that those are, those are like some of the bands that were around, you know, um, uh, Canter, you know, the whole Canterbury scene. But I think there are some leanings here, kind of, kind of some hints at it uh, at the Canterbury. And so I think there's just aspects of it uh, that that are included with this with this record. Uh, so what what is it? Let me let's let's go through that. And Drew, if you have anything on this, please hop in. Um, but the aspects of the Canterbury scene really kind of like in improvisation, uh, jazz influences. I think that's the biggest thing is is the jazz influence, the avant-garde uh, combined with rock and psychedelia. So just just from those right there, improv, jazz, rock, and psychedelia, that that can kind of sum up this record. Would you you know that that could kind of sum up a lot of uh, what we hear on Mood Madness. Um, but the scene or sound is obviously named after the city of Canterbury, England, during the '60s and '70s. It like I said, it has its associations with prog rock, but like you know, this is I think this is the closest thing we've covered that leans to this style. Uh, Camel wasn't formed in Canterbury, though. They they they're actually they were formed in Guildford, which is about eighty five miles uh, or or one hundred and thirty six kilometers from Canterbury. So it's quite close. So I guess you could kind of group those in, you know. But I think uh, there are some certain leanings here. I found this quote online of what the essence of the Canterbury sound is. I found this to be interesting. He said. The real essence of Canterbury's sound is the tension between complicated harmonies, extended improvisations, and the sincere desire to write catchy pop songs. In the very best Canterbury music, the, music, uh, the musically silly and the musically serious are juxtaposed in, amu in an amusing and endearing way. I thought that was an interesting way to describe this because uh, it's almost... It's taking jazz. I don't know. Interrupt me if if you think that I'm if I'm off here. But like, I feel like jazz. In sometimes in jazz, people do jazz because it's jazz and like it's pretentiously jazz. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, why is this jazz? Well, you know, it. it you know, it, from a musician's perspective, it can get. And I know a lot of musicians that do or like to do jazz or like to listen to jazz just because it's like, Oh, there's, you know, it's, it's more difficult, yada, yada, yada. Like it's just better. Or it's, there's a certain pretentious area, kind of like with prog rock, there are certain ways that yeah, we can be pretentious with prog rock. And I definitely think that there are certain ways people can be pretentious with jazz. And I find it interesting because <laughs> jazz, I've never thought of people of being like, Oh yeah, we write jazz because we want to write catchy pop songs. Like that's just not a thing that right. people do so i think that that's uh an interesting 
description, mainly because it goes against everything that I know to be of jazz, which is really more about the improv, the you know the the structuring of stuff like that and uh, and the sound just the 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 vibe of it and stuff like that so uh i'm not going to go too far too deep into this because like i said we'll cover canterbury in a in a later episode but i just want to give like a hint to it just to say you know i think this is the closest thing that we've talked about and maybe we'll expound upon it later in a future episode when we do you know gong or caravan or uh, the soft machine or hatfield in the north or whatever um but Generally, the the idea of the Canterbury scene, I find it to be very similar to the Nashville scene. Drew, is uh, is that the uh, it's really centered around a sound that was being developed around the city, as well as the musicians that were playing around the time. So, you know, there's a lot of there are a lot of people that came out of the Canterbury scene that went on to do a bunch of really big stuff. And the, the first two people that I saw in here that I was like, oh, I know exactly who they are are Andy Summers from The Police and Alan Holdsworth, who went on to play with Bruford and was just a phenomenal guitar player. And uh, all of these guys were kind of around the scene and recording stuff in the area that created sort of the Canterbury sound, which is kind of like the Nashville scene to me, which there are there are a lot of A-lister guys who come in, they record all the country records, they record all the country rock records, they're here and they use the same five, six, seven, ten studios, and they're there's pumping out music that has this sound. And so uh, that's that's a very, very um, hopefully decent description of what the Canterbury scene was like. But I would you you have, I think, a little bit more history behind of what Camel was doing at the time. Is that right? Or did you go through all yeah. of the history of everything that was going on? No, primarily just this record. Um, I don't know very much about Camel's origins or where they went after this. Um, yeah. Other than that, this was, again, I don't know if we mentioned it already. We may have, that this was the last album with this particular lineup. Yeah, I mentioned lineup. that. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So, yeah. So, this was the last one with this group of guys. And, um, I mean, that's always interesting to me. I know we mentioned it last time, uh, I think, on the Lamb episode where we were talking about just you know it's always sad when a member leaves when you don't have that same lineup because i mean that's stuff changes it really really changes when that happens and not necessarily in a bad way but you know there's a bit of nostalgia there and a sense of loss so um even though i'm not you know i i don't know that much about camel uh you know it's kind of a bittersweet thing when it's the last of this particular lineup yeah um so I forget who left after this, um, but I think I I'm pretty sure Andy Ward was one of them that had no. Never mind. Sorry, no. He was fired. He was fired later. He played with them a little bit longer, but yeah. I forget exactly. It may have been Ferguson because I think one more record after this was um, was when Barden's left the the keyboardist, but he was yeah. here I think for one more record after Moon Madness. So it may have been the bassist uh, Doug Ferguson. Gotcha. But um, uh, there was an interesting interview with Andy Latimer several years later um, about Moon Madness. Um, this was from loudersound.com. Um, and this was written not too long ago. This was last year. Um, this was in August of 2019. Kind of wrote this retrospective on this record. And uh, I'll just read some of the stuff that that he said uh, about this. And we mentioned earlier that the vocals are always kind of weak uh, in, in Camel Records. That's what a lot of people had said. Yeah. Um, and Andy Latimer said, when it came to Moon Madness, 
we didn't have that much confidence about any of our vocals. So we had to be really inventive about it. We disguised them in lots of ways, putting Leslie speaker effects on vocals and phasers and all those kinds of things. And then also not mixing them too loud. I think that gave the album a certain mood. And a lot of people liked the treatment we did on the vocals and we really only did it just to cover them up. So I thought that was interesting. It kind of reminded me of Stephen Wilson. You mentioned yep. that on, I think, In Absentia. Yes. Um, he says he doesn't think he has a very good voice, so he kind of covers it up with a bunch of effects. Yeah. So, And a lot of people enjoy that, though. Um, you know, and I <laughs> I think that's great, actually. It's like, look, I, I know that, but I like the lineup we have. I want to keep kind of the, the feel and the chemistry we have with our members. So I'm going to make it work. This is what I like about our group, but I'll make it work with a bunch of effects. And it does work, by and large. Uh, you know, they don't have voices that are, like, super strong, like... Let's say, I don't know. I think of the Mars Volta. That guy has an incredible range. Right. right. And a very strong voice. And a lot of, you know, these prog acts don't. Um, you know, or... It's just interesting. I think it's very... Hmm. I agree with what he said. It's very inventive. You're making it work. And I kind of like that. Um, so, I, I actually like the vocals in this. Again, we'll get to our opinions on it later. But uh, I do agree that they're kind of weak. But it doesn't bother me. Um, yeah, me neither. Anyways, um, I think that this was a point from what I read in some of the research where um, even though this was the last of this particular lineup, these four guys, and even though later on other members would leave, like Barden and, and Ward, um, it wasn't like Pink Floyd or the Beatles where it was like, look, this is like their second to last or this is their last, and you could tell. Like they were really at each other's throats. They hated each other, all that. I don't think so. I think you're obviously going to have some disagreements when you come into a band, but from what I read from Latimer, he was like, this was actually a really good time for us. This was, hmm. you know, there was obviously pressure from the record companies, but you always get that because yeah, they're always wanting you to sell. Always, and there's, yeah, exactly. That's, that's another really interesting, very broad topic to talk about is talking about like how you stay true to yourself while still also making a, a fair amount of income. And also, if you didn't have the record company, would your record be nearly as popular? Would it reach as many people? And, you know, is that important? Is it not? I mean, you know, um, the, you yeah. know, the idealist in you probably says, no, stay true to your art. But it's like, OK, but you obviously want people to recognize and appreciate that art. That's kind of why you make art is because you have something to say. It's an expression of yourself. And you're probably hoping that someone can identify or relate with that. Anyways, the very broad topic. But there was pressure <laughs> from the record companies, he said. But he said, I think as far as the actual writing of the music and how the group was getting along it was good it, it was it was a very solid point which again i just don't usually see when it's like this is the last album of this lineup it's like we usually it's normally really it's like coming into like other. a falling out something yeah like it's absolutely. already on the fence something is, right and it's know. this sense of like let's just get this record done or yeah. i don't feel like i'm being heard here blah 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 yeah it's kind of like um, kind of like close to the edge right now granted this is Latimer's perspective. I don't think I read that much actually from uh, Ward, who was the drummer, yep. or Ferguson, who was the bassist. I don't think I, I heard that much from them. But um, the concept of the album is really cool. It's very loose, very nuanced, and very subtle, but kind of had two things tying it together. One, uh, the concept behind it is that each member got their own song that reflected yeah. their personality. Now, I will say this. Uh, I, will, I, will, 
I will qualify this with saying that that Latimer and Bardens were the ones who wrote it for everyone, meaning they wrote the song for Ward and for Ferguson and themselves. That kind of they were kind of a dynamic duo in a way, and um, you know it's just funny. I, I just interesting how many of these bands kind of have these two prominent personalities. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So like we talked last time, like you know Roger Waters and David Gilmour and Paul McCartney and um, what am I trying to say? Uh, John Lennon. Oh my goodness. Yep. But you know, these two, these teams that really kind of are, you know, just such an intense force and such an amazing creative force. And it seems like that was the way with Latimer and Barton. Um, but I think that's interesting because I, I'm pretty sure with Fragile, the individual people, and we talked about this on our third episode, when we've covered Fragile by Yes. Yep. That I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they wrote their own songs. So like, Bruford wrote 5% yes, for did. nothing. Yeah, he which did. Which is basically just bass and drums. There's a little bit of keys in there, it's too. It's hilarious. But, but uh, you know, then Squire was... Uh, the Fish. The Fish. Yep. And, uh, y- you know, all, all those. We won't go into all of those. But I'm pretty sure the individual members wrote about themselves. Yeah. Right? With this, Latimer and Barton obviously kind of wrote about themselves. But they also wrote for the other two guys wrote in the, the group. Other, that's weird. Uh you know, I don't think I read anything where they were like really offended by that. I guess they were fine with it, but I think that's really this, interesting. This concept is already loose, and that just makes it even more loose. Just yeah. like, okay, like, I guess they're gonna write for the rest of the other members too, right? But I think that's interesting. You know, I think if, if you know, I, I, <laughs> I think that's fine, and I also think that's just a really unique concept. And again, we we saw it with Fragile, um, but. I, I, I like that idea. Uh, you know, I like that idea of... Uh, yeah, I'm not against We're going to write a, a song that's re- purposefully reflective of our personalities. I think when you write music, obviously a part of your personality is going to shine through as part of who you are. It's, it's from your brain, right? So it's, it's a creative thought um, or a musical thought that came from you. So obviously it's going to be reflective of your personality, duh. But when you set out with that intention of I'm going to write really just a, a, a one piece of music that's going to reflect who I am you know that's really interesting yeah I think that's really cool first off really... so that was kind of the, the first loose concept yeah the second one is that all of them have some way or another to deal dealing with the moon moon madness right yep right so uh, Aristolus is the first track that's a crater on the moon yep. um, and that's why they named it that and all these tracks have in some way shape or form lyrically or mood wise have something to do with the moon or you know and again that makes sense why it was listed as you know one of in like the top 40 cosmic, cosmic. rock albums yep yeah 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 right and you do get that feel when listening to this sorry i think i cut you off earlier what were you saying no no i was i was just gonna say that like i didn't really figure out what the personalities were when listening to the songs i don't know they kind of all and i'm not saying that there's i'm not saying that there's not enough variety on the record but the record does kind of have it has a feel. It doesn't really jump from a, a bunch of wide, wide areas. It has it has its little uh, area that it plays around, but um, I don't know. I, either they're all similar, but I just didn't hear that when I was listening to it. I was like, oh, this. I don't know. I just get. I didn't get any sort of like very specific, evoked emotion or style or something that was um, associated with. Oh, I could see this as describing a person or something. I don't know. That's just me. 
But sure, and I don't think you're going to unless you know that person. Unless you know them, exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's like obviously their fans don't know them intimately. They don't really know their personality. So like, yeah. you're not going to know that. I to I'll just add to that and say I think this record is diverse enough. Yes. I, yeah. You know. I don't think it, like it's not one of those where I think, oh my gosh, it's just a repeat. Like this is the same yeah, song no. as that other track or whatever. Because some some records can sound like that. We're comparing one record to another. Yeah. But I didn't get that. I agree with you though that you get a certain cohesive feel to it, and yes. I kind of appreciate that where yeah. their well, identity it's, it's, it's is the idea of the of the album. You know, with mood madness and, and the right. cosmic rock, and it it has a. Uh, they knew what they were doing when they were, it, it just sounded, right. it sounds like they knew, they knew exactly what they wanted, what they were doing. Right. Right. And right. how they, and how they achieved it was exactly right. in it. And yeah, it was, I thought it was great. I'll look, I'll, I'll, I'll look a little deeper into this with the, um, what you were saying about their personalities. I'll give a quick little, um, summary of okay. how Andy Latimer described the personalities and how he related them to the song. So another night, was the song for Doug Ferguson, the bassist. Yep. And here's what he said about that song. He said, Doug was the organizer and was the peacemaker too when Pete and I were going at it. Uh, <laughs> because Doug is a very solid is very solid as an individual, very organized and a bit Sergeant Major-ish. He was the one that picked up the money and drove us and got us organized. We were a bit of a handful for him, if I'm honest, but he was also very solid as a bass player and he always had an amazing amount of stories. I couldn't tell you how many of them uh, I couldn't tell you many of them because they're a bit risque, to say the least. But he was always disappearing at night and walking the streets doing silly things. So we came up with another night. That's um, hilarious. So I like these little insights into the songs. Yeah, uh, well, it shows insights into the into the character of the of the individual members too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, chord change is Pete Bardens, and he yeah. is the keyboard player. Uh, he said. Uh, this is Latimer um, saying, I always found Pete could be very changeable. So I thought we needed a piece with a lot of changes in it. Writing our songs was very loose for Pete and I because it was really difficult. We just decided to do something like that with the complexities in Pete's writing coming through. Although we were writing together, each one of us was stronger in different areas, if that makes sense. So the beginning part of chord change is mainly Pete, and I wrote the more melodic stuff, the guitar breaks and things, but it was still a very good joint effort. So mm. that's what he had to say about that one. Um, I guess Pete, yeah, was a person who could adapt to change or just was kind of all over the place. Maybe, you know, someone that was yeah. not very predictable. Maybe I don't know. Interesting. Um, I think when you get a bunch of artists in a room, you're going to see that come through in general. Right. Uh, when they care about what they're making. Um, yep. So uh, Lunar C, which by the way, fun fact, Lunar C, Lunacy. And Lunacy. Lunar, yeah. 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 Right? Also, lunar, the moon, moon madness, uh. madness, lunar sea, lunacy. Anyways, um, uh, he he was the drummer, and uh, this is for Andy Ward. Yep, he said, let's just say that Andy at that stage had an excessive personality, so he was always being silly. He was an incredibly talented drummer because he'd worked with us from the beginning. He always knew what we wanted. He was incredibly inventive, very funny but was always the quiet guy of the band in an odd kind of way. And that's what's, uh, and that's somewhat against what you might think. But Andy was into a lot of things, especially jazz. So when we started writing stuff, we knew that his song was going to be fairly jazzy and fairly complicated. Not jazz in the proper sense, because none of us were proper jazzers, but it was what we considered jazz, I suppose. So I thought that was interesting, that's kind of cool. talking about like part of his personality was really being interested in jazz. And they decided to kind of 
delve more into a jazzy feel with that song. Maybe. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. And I can hear that too with, with some of the drum. I fairly, I enjoy the drumming on this record. And, yeah. uh, and it does have, it does have a lot of jazz leniencies to it. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and then the last one? Last one is Airborne, and that was about Latimer himself, the guitarist and the flautist. One of the most, uh, and this is not him. Uh, this is uh, this is someone in the article that was writing about it. So this is not <laughs> Latimer talking about himself. Okay. Um, one of the most beautifully mellow of Camel's songs, Airborne is a shimmering, hazy affair that almost casually sums up Latimer's famously laid back and humble demeanor. In fact, the song was meant to portray its subject as the prog rock equivalent of a, uh, yeah, of a Vaughn, yeah, of a Vaughn Williams symphony, windswept, rain bothered, and English to the core. And then this is Latimer <laughs> talking about it. He says, looking back, it was all a bit pretentious, but at that stage, I wanted to be incredibly English because I thought that made sense to me. Uh, so I wrote the beginning of Airborne and I thought, okay, this is what I feel is really English. I was imagining woods and fields and all that stuff, just trying to capture more of an English feel. We were trying to write about ourselves, and that was hard because it's difficult to look at yourself and think, who am I? How do I come across to people? So that's all he said hmm. about that. Um, I thought that was really interesting, too. That's and cool. I, I agree with him. It's like, how do you write about yourself um, entirely with that intention in mind? You know, yeah. it's not yeah. like I'm going to write about this subject and inherently your perspective on a certain subject is going to come through whenever you talk about a certain subject. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, but when you go into it thinking, I'm going to talk about myself, <laughs> what do I think about myself? What do other people think about me? How do I reconcile all of that into a piece of music? Into a song. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, <laughs> near what impossible. Is it, do you know where it comes from? The where airborne comes from? No, uh, hold on. Mention anything about like why airborne? Let me check. I I think that kind of goes in with that whole kind of laid back sort of thing. It is a very mellow song. Yeah, Um, and it seems like you're flying uh, and and everything. And uh, maybe he was not English, so I don't know. I can't say how English it is because he also wanted that to come through clearly. Hmm. His Englishness. Um, There's the there's the flute on it, right? Does he play flute yes. on Airborne? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which could sound very Genesis-y, which could also be quite English, because, I don't know, when I think English, English, I think of, like, selling England by the pound or something. And so, yeah, right. maybe that maybe that could come through as some sort of, I don't know. Right. Uh, I, not, I, not saying that the flute is an English instrument. Like, it's not, like, you know, <laughs> right. restricted to English musicians or whatever. Right. Um, What did he say? In another interview, he said, Airborne was written about me because they saw me as very English. When I sat down and I wrote the intro to Airborne, I had to discard all of this American influence I had throughout my youth. Um, So I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. I wonder what kind of American influence that was. Latimer, who prefers to be classified as emotional music rather than progressive, is ever romantic in his flute melodies, usually played as song openings and instrumental transitions. So That's cool. Maybe he was like delivered as a baby on a stork, like he was he was airborne and he you know he was dropped off. Like that's what. Yeah. Then yeah. Yeah. Maybe because everyone knows that like right, some babies. people are lucky to be delivered yeah. as a stork. Right. Yeah. Well, they, 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 they get delivered by stork. Right. Oh, not all of them though. Not this all. Is a special. Of them. This is a special. So if edition. you're special, like Andy Latimer. Yeah. You're gonna be delivered yeah. by a stork. And see the and the thing is is that he came from the moon. 
moon sure. madness, right? And now he's this, you know, quasi moon alien dude who is sure. being delivered from Stork to be dropped off at some English, I don't know, the Latimers, right? Now his right. name, now his name is whatever and they yeah. name him and he grows up and realizes oh my goodness i was i came from storks i was right. i am airborne i am airborne sure. i was de- i was delivered in the air i was airborne right you understand you know what i'm what? saying absolutely i'm gonna write a song about that yeah 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 so anyway yeah um okay um <laughs> that was all for <laughs> shoot that was all four of the songs and kind of his uh, a brief little snapshot into all of them, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, I like that. I'm glad you brought that up because I, when oh, I was I looking like that. at that, oh, shoot, I can't. <laughs> but, no, but what I was going to say is I, I like that you brought that up because I, the, I couldn't hear that. And obviously you can't hear that. Unless, unless it's right. uh, unless, unless it's you're some sort of for very it. specific emotion that can be heard throughout, which to this most of the whole record to me was just sort of mellow, and so I couldn't hear what that was. So I'm glad that you got to mention it. So now I can go back and listen to it and 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 listen for those parts and knowing what 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 they were writing about and the characteristics that they were writing about. That's cool, right? So absolutely. Um, well, you want to talk about what what we thought about it? Yeah, let's talk. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so the you know, mentioned before, uh, or maybe I didn't mention this, but the the record is seven songs, um, runs about forty minutes, and uh, I well, I guess I'll just I guess I'll just kind of throw this out there, and we can just sort of roll with it. From my opinion, I rather enjoyed it. I I thought I thought this was a solid album. It took me probably two listens to to get into it. Um, and by the fourth or fifth time that I listened to it, I was like, yeah, I like this. I like this. I can see myself coming back and listening to this again. Um, and uh, it's interesting, though, because, and I know that we briefly talked about this, Drew, is that this doesn't have some deep concept. And it doesn't have like a, no, a very— No, it's not convoluted. It, it's, it's not a convoluted. It's not what you would expect. Not maybe what you would expect, but it's not this gigantic uh, puzzle that you have to dissect right. like like maybe the last two records that we did being the lamb and animals you know like those were very ambitious i'm not saying that this is is not ambitious but you know conceptually pretty ambitious with sound effects and certain things this is just a a solid mellow record like it's one of those things you could just throw yeah. on and you can take it to the bank it's like all right yeah we could just keep this rolling on and uh and enjoy it um, I 100% agree. So that that's kind of my that's kind of my first uh, first reaction to it. I was like, this is a yeah, it's just a solid chill, uh, but has enough there to entice you to uh, to come back to it because yeah, of it's maybe some still, of that Canterbury jazz stuff. Right, and it's still Prague for sure. It's they do some complicated stuff on here. Is it yeah. the most complicated stuff we've covered on the show? No, not by a long shot. But it's still stuff that you know you have to be a very competent musician to play this to, yeah. to, to play this stuff yeah it's difficult stuff there are some on time signatures they put in here yep there are multiple melodies that they stack on top of each other um this is still definitely progressive rock um yeah in the sense of complexity and in the sense of uh you know there's definitely a bit of a concept there as well and the length of the songs they're all fairly long but Fair, like yeah. you said this is not one of those prog albums that you look to and you're like 
Oh goodness. Oh, the story, yeah, yeah. the story oh, this no. is insane or oh man, this is a monster you're gonna, of a record. You're gonna, yeah, you're going to find 5 billion articles of people breaking it down. Right. No. And, and it doesn't it doesn't have that. So it's like no. musically uh yeah, it's just I don't know. I, I, that's the that's literally the best way I can describe. Well, I mean, I can I'm, go into like maybe a combination of what it sounds like to me, which I, I thought it was kind of like I don't know. I heard some Yes and Pink Floyd and some Pat Metheny and Tangerine Dream and a little bit mm-hmm. of Alan Holdsworth. That was kind of my <laughs> I don't know uh, collective yeah. bands that I'm pulling from to be like, yeah, that's this is what it kind of sounds like in certain areas. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, I I just feel like honestly on the show we've been going full throttle for a while and this was a really nice departure from that. I mean we had yeah. did Chon which was just you know really intense and then Monster. we did Dream yeah. Dream Theater which was just so much and then Animals there's so much to dissect there from a conceptual analysis and the history of the band and all that stuff there was so much to go into there and then Lamb lies down oh my gosh Lamb is just so much yeah it's, it's this huge. Record double album this was just so nice to put to take the foot off the gas pedal for a second yeah and this is very cosmic rock psychedelic i could get lost in this like you could really enjoy like doing a puzzle with this in the background or just laying down yeah dude honestly like this is the nice like if i feel sick and i just want to lay in bed have some saltines and ginger ale heck yeah yeah i'm gonna listen to this because it it, like i mean obviously you can do that with like much less ambitious music because this is still ambitious music to to a degree if you're comparing it to something like I don't know, soundscape music like Tycho or something like that. Yeah. But but still, this is just very like this right here. Like listen. Dude, dude, I love this. Yes. No, it's I'm amazing. Like, yeah. I'm gonna pull this up. Hold on. Like this is yeah. This is this is one this is my favorite section of this. That bass line's so simple, but it's it so is. perfect. It's just repeating. It's so perfect there. Yeah, no, it's it's great. Oh the, the little he's so he's so subtle with the hi hat. Yep, yep. He's going to those. He's throwing in those little thirty-second notes. Uh, oh, I love things. those. Yeah. Oh he's, my gosh. He's playing the sixteenth note. Throws in a couple of those little thirty-second notes. Yep. And uh, and then hits those open hi hats. Dude, it's just a chill album. Like, and 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 also like, I'm gonna pull it back down here, but like one of the things that I love as well is that like, it it still rocks, in 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 areas like it's uh. It's not all psychedelic. Like there's, you know, it has some rock. It's still rock. It's still rock music. Um, But it's very, what I would say, controlled. And it's clean and very crisply produced. That's another thing. Yeah, and I think another thing with this record is, like like we were just talking about, oh, I love this. I really get into this. It's really great. You cannot help. I can't help. When I'm actively listening, really locking into their groove. Dude, their groove is groove is great. Good. Yeah. yeah, the drummer is so solid. The rhythms that they have on not just the drums, but how the rhythms of the other, you know, parts of the bass and the keys and everything too yep. are brilliant. They all blend together very well. Yeah, and, I would agree. Oh man, yeah, they are just so groovy. I and they really, have really they have this. Uh, what I what I love about it is that you can every single instrument is very very prominent in every section like i know exactly what the keys are doing right now i know exactly what the bass is doing I know exactly what the drums and the, and the guitar player and uh, and i love how there's this sort of revolving door of parts switching and stuff like that i just i don't know i really like the way that this record is produced because of yeah. that you can you can 
you can literally listen to one member throughout the whole thing and uh, and kind of jive with that. You can also listen to it as a collective and throw it on in the background and, and it would be kind of chill. And you can also pull out some of those complexities as well. But um, it's a very collaborative. It sounds it sounds very collaborative to me. Uh, yeah. It's it's not just uh, yeah. You, know, you can hear each member's contribution. Yes. Clearly. Yeah. Which is why I said it sounded like yes to me in certain areas because right, I've always right. found I've always found yes to be a very collaborative band. Um, it wasn't right. just uh, a brainchild and then some people in the background. Uh, right, right, right. It, it, yeah, I just I really liked how these musicians mesh on this album. It's just a perfect combination, which is why I can now see for people who are big Camel fans the loss of you know the, the loss experienced of no longer having these four members in the in the band. Right. Yeah, this part's great too. That's in China, I think. I think well, he's in China. Though. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The yeah bell that's the bell. Oh, it's yeah, great. Yeah, the China. Yep. Yep. Yeah, then he goes to China there. Yeah, it's it's great. Oh, even even uh, and even though the vocals are a weak point, the music makes up for it. It really does. Yeah, I think it doesn't. Uh, yeah, I I like the vocals. I, I like the vocals, though this isn't an album that I'm going to say you're going to listen to this album for the vocals. I Here's here's what I said. They aren't anything super impressive. They don't draw too much attention, but I think they serve a purpose. They blend well with the music, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and at the very least, even if you don't agree with that, they don't distract from the rest of the composition, which a lot of vocalists, even good vocalists, even very strong, very capable vocalists, can do all too easily when they distract from the rest of the music. I like how simple and unassuming the vocals are on this record. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't disrupt the excellence of the songs at all. Yeah. Um, and this is, a, this is a very nuanced record in general. Um, I've given a lot of praise and I can give more because I really did thoroughly enjoy this record a lot. Um, yeah. If, if I were to give one critique is that at times it does seem a bit jam bandy in the sense that it goes on for a while i don't think it goes yeah. on too long this is not they ne- it never goes on and i'm like oh my gosh it's finally over right you know uh sometimes I've, I've heard stuff like that like i don't feel like that with the prog epics that we typically review on the show because there are so many different moods it doesn't feel super repetitive mm-hmm. you know like it's just it's a journey you're going through but yeah. this is this is a uh, uh what was i gonna oh shoot sorry but it's uh intentionally repetitive in certain areas you're saying it is or isn't is it is intentionally repetitive in, okay in some in some of these songs i mean it's i mean it's no yeah i mean it's it's very clear that it's like some oh, of the solos I'm continue doing go these. like i'll be honest i have apparently according to people online a, a very controversial opinion in that lunar sea is not the best track on this record so many people online are like lunar sea it's yeah. the best one they say lunar it's sea. up there with like lady fantasy on mirage yeah it's the me- it's the best of their and it's great there's some amazing solos and i really appreciate it there's so many other musical compositions on this record that i enjoy more as yeah. a whole uh i honestly i love aristolus i love aristolus yeah, it's no, super cool. short it's so short but oh my gosh those sounds and those rhythms they're basic but they're they're so cool kind of this they marching paint such feel a picture to it. for me yeah, kind of this weird fantasy marching feel to it. It's interesting. Um, I like Aristolus. I like Another Night. There are a lot of other tracks that I like. I, I enjoy Lunar Sea, but it's not my favorite. Um, but I think maybe part of that is because Lunar Sea is pretty long. And it doesn't change that much. Um, I mean, yeah. it, 
there are different moods. There are definitely different moods. This isn't like it at the end of, you know, the lamb lies down on Broadway again, which I also really enjoy, um, which is weird because it's very repetitive. Right. But, um, you know, I'm just talking about jam bands in general where like you can have a song that easily should have been three minutes and they expand it into 30 and there's hardly any change in the music other than, okay, this is the fifth or sixth guitar solo from the same yep. guitarist. Right. Yep. And you know, jazz does that to a, to a point, but it's never that long. Jazz yeah, is like, okay, we might have two yeah. or three rounds maybe of solos going from, you know, saxophone or whatever your favorite lead instrument is, maybe guitar and then piano and then upright bass. And then, you know what I mean? But usually at least when I've been to a couple jazz shows, they only do that like two or three times and then they close it out. Right. And yeah. then they'll have like a main refrain and then you're done. I've seen some jam bands that oh, will go on oh, for like goodness, th- their, their, their studio cut will be like, you know, below five minutes, <laughs> like five minutes. Yeah. Minutes. <laughs> and you see them live and it's like, okay, yes, I want to hear the music live and everything, but I don't need this four minute track. I don't need this for 18, turn into minutes. 18 minutes. Like it just doesn't need that. And it seems so excessive, so unnecessary. And it gets to the point where it's so unnecessary that it becomes a little bit irritating, you know? So, yeah. um, I, I I get a tinge of that with this record. That's my only criticism, I think, for me personally. My my own personal criticism um, is that. But again, it's just a tinge. And by the time I even have start having these thoughts, the song's over. I'm like, oh, okay, okay, right, like right. We're, we're good. We're not going on way too much. And then we get a song that has a very different melody and a different feel. Yeah. So I I think this is absolutely a spectacular album. Would I recommend this to someone? One hundred percent. You should absolutely listen to this record. Yeah. No, it's great. You absolutely I don't, should. We talked about this, I think, uh, maybe a couple of days ago or something like that. But what you were talking about with with the just, the just a little bit of like repetitiveness, I don't get that. Um, and from my perspective, I grew up listening to my father's R&B records, like where, you know, every song has A, the same bass line throughout the entire thing. And it's usually pretty funky, right? I'm talking. I'm talking like Daz Band, KC and the Sunshine Band, Shaka Khan, The Whispers, that kind of right, stuff. Right, right. You know, where every single song has a 12 inch version of it, and it's all like 14 minutes right. of the same bass line and the same groove going over and over and over again. And I just grew up listening to that stuff. So I this uh this was elementary to me when it comes <laughs> when it was when it's like relative to that. Uh, it didn't that didn't bother me. Um, but that's, that's my perspective. I know that, you know, just a little bit. And so, but yeah, I, I, for, for me, I really, really enjoyed Lunar Sea, but song within a song and Lunar Sea are probably my two favorites. Although I really enjoy chord change in another night. Um, I just love some of the, uh, the textures on them. The first, or I think about 30 seconds into the song of song within a song is so, uh, Pink Floydian. It's, it's fantastic. I really, really oh. like it. Song and, within a song is mellifluous. Oh, it's, that's the best way to describe that it's song. A, yeah, it's amazing. It is mellifluous. It is brilliant. It's yeah. a beautiful song. It's incredible. I love. I and love here's it. here's another thing too. I didn't know if I don't know if you uh, actually thought about it this way, but the in the original way that this was intended to be heard, right? Side A ended with "Spirit of the Water." Okay, which is this like I call it haunting. I find it to be quite haunting, even though it's I think it's the shortest shortest piece, but it's kind of this haunting, but very nice. It's it's a very lovely composition. Yeah, I, I, 
I, I see that. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. But then you flip over the disc and it goes into this slow crescendo with another yeah. night. And then and it goes straight into that bass line. That is a way to enter into a B side of a record. Like that is yeah, a, and it has no, a gritty guitar groove in it. Um and I think totally I think agree. uh Another Night has, in my opinion, the best vocal performance on the record. Um, it just kind of grabs me a little bit more. It actually seems like it had more of a purpose. The other one seems very layered, where it's just kind of like, yeah, we just layered some of these vocals, add to the vibe. Uh, Another Night actually sounds like, oh, this is like a verse. It seems like right. it was very intentional. I don't know. Maybe it was the way it was delivered. Uh, right. Or whatever, I, I enjoy like. Airborne's vocals as well, but that's me. Yeah, I like it. I like that Anyways. one too. But anyway. Oh, I like that. Oh, I like um, that. God bless. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, that's those. Those are our thoughts on that. Yeah, this, this so. is a great, great record. I really enjoyed it. It yeah. was, it was a nice kind of chill break, but there's a lot to appreciate it about it too. This, yeah, this was really good. Exactly. Do you have anything else to say before we close out? Uh, if I did, I'm not going to share it. Okay, that's <laughs> shoot. Whoa, unreal. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. No, I'm good. I'm set. All right. Well, hey, everybody, we would like to thank you so much for listening to our podcast. These are our prog notes for Mood Madness by Camel. If you enjoyed the episode, learned something new from the episode, please subscribe and share. Conversation does not have to stop here, though. You can follow us on Instagram at prog underscore notes and our Facebook page at prog notes podcast. You can also join our prog notes community, which will give you access to our monthly newsletter, as well as other fun stuff like our discord community and more prog rock music. You can find the link to that to join in this episode's description or on our social media platforms. Uh, Drew, what is the next episode's album? Well, we mentioned it earlier, uh, but episode 30 is going to be Caress of Steel by Rush. Caress of Steel by Rush. Such a crazy... I never thought that we were going to be doing Caress of Steel. I never, ever thought people would vote for that. Never. Never. I, I mean, I, I, I would think that Hemispheres would come way before Caress of Steel. Yeah, or even or power windows, yep. like any, like this was way at the bottom of the list. But hey, we're Rush fans and we're gonna enjoy it. So exactly, join us next time as we discover the past, present, and future of Prague Rock. See you guys on Discord. Thanks.